I'm Corinne Linz, and you're listening to Infraintelligence, a podcast from Renew Canada magazine. In today's episode, Canada continues to add energy capacity to the grid, with almost every province and territory having new assets under development. The solutions are being driven by power companies, energy developers, and in some cases, government initiatives. When faced with the decision to develop new power assets, what is the driving force behind the choice that is made? Do communities have the information needed to make the best decisions possible based on short-term and long-term costs? Or are they at the mercy of the preference of the power utility that services their community? Your host today, Todd Latham, owner and founder of Actual Media and Renew Canada magazine, will lead an important discussion on the cost of energy development and how communities can find the best possible solutions based on geography, technology, and grid capacity. My name is Todd Latham. I'm the president of Actual Media and the founder of Renew Canada. Uh, Thanks for joining us today. Uh, Without further ado, um, there's a lot to cover today, as you probably have uh, seen in the news over the last little while. um, uh, Energy infrastructure, specifically renewable energy infrastructure, is uh, very, very hot. The stock market is taking off with renewable stock options and, and uh, plays. And uh, obviously, the Biden administration just recently announced yesterday uh, a massive new Green New Deal that will include, um, you know, up to a trillion dollars in in clean energy and, and green economy initiatives. Uh, Davos is taking place uh, in Europe. And there's been a lot of talk from the uh, International Energy Agency about getting to net zero by 2050. So, um, there's a lot of background and a lot of momentum for clean energy and renewable energy in Canada, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. So let me first introduce uh, our speakers. Uh, first up is Murray Westerberg, and Murray is the director of uh, Western Canada, BC, uh, for Borea Construction. Murray, welcome. Morning, uh, next, uh, next, I'd like to introduce Julia St. Michael. She's a uh, director of in sustainability engagement with N-Wave Energy Corporation in Toronto. Hi, Julia. And uh, last but not least, uh, our third panelist today is Jean-Francois Nottel. He's uh, VP of Policy, Government and Public Relations for the Canadian Renewable Energy Association. So welcome, Jean-Francois, Julia, and Murray. Uh, Murray, over to you to introduce yourself and a little bit about this topic that we're going to be diving into today. Sure. Thanks very much, Todd. Uh, Looking forward to discussing uh, energy costs, especially as they relate to renewables. And I'm honored to be able to speak about that together with Julia and Jean-Francois and and hopefully hear some of your questions and be helpful to your business and provide some insights to you. I'd like to tell you a little bit about Berea Construction. Uh, I've been with this company since 2013. Uh, Prior to that, I started in renewables in 2008, and so I've seen a lot of change within the Canadian renewable energy industry over this time. Um, As far as Berea Construction, we are a full engineering, procurement, and construction contractor. So our clients hire us when they have a plot of land. Uh, Sometimes they don't even have a power purchase agreement yet and we help them to design the project and uh, make it as cost feasible as possible so that they can be competitive in a power purchase agreement, uh, RFP. And so we have 150 engineers and professionals on staff. And further to that, on our sites at the current moment, we have approximately 500 uh, site staff and tradespeople. And of course, that fluctuates with the demand of how many projects that we're building at any given time. So Berea was incorporated in 2006. It is a 100% owned subsidiary of Pomerlo Construction. For those of you that aren't familiar with Pomerlo, they're one of the top five GCs in Canada, a general contractor doing um, everything from residential high-rises to stadiums to large infrastructure projects, uh, working in the marine sector as well as a big part of the business. Berea itself has offices across Canada, so I'm speaking to you today from Abbotsford, British Columbia, but we also have an office in Calgary, Alberta, Toronto, Ontario, and also in Quebec City. 
To date, we have completed 65 renewable energy projects across Canada in that time frame since 2006. That equates to 5,785 megawatts of capacity for renewable energy. Um, so if you're doing the math, that's about one third of Canada's renewable energy construction that we have been working on and, and completed. It's enough energy to power approximately 1 million Canadian homes. Uh, I think a big reason why our clients choose us is we're one of the few in the sector that uh, self-performs a lot of the work ourselves. Uh, we do manage some subs on site, but a uh, big reason why we're able to keep costs down and drive schedule is because we do self-perform the work. So on a wind project, you would see our personnel building the roads. Uh, we would also be the ones constructing the foundations as well. It's also our people that erect the wind turbines and, uh, and also work together with the client to commission the product. And then on the solar side, uh, we also do the foundations there. So we drive the piles. We own our own machines to do that. Uh, we build the tracking systems ourselves and we install the modules ourselves also. And I think that gives us a, a rather large competitive advantage uh, across Canada. I can speak to you a bit about the projects that we're doing right now. We have 11 projects underway. Um, we're, we're very active in Alberta, as I'm sure you've noticed, a lot of the work has shifted towards the West. Uh, when I first joined Berea, it was heavily, heavily focused on Ontario and building out the feed-in tariff projects and then later on the large renewable procurement projects there. But in recent years, um, with these clean energy RFPs uh, that we've seen come across in Alberta, it has now translated this year to a lot of business for us. So we're currently constructing Hayes and Jenner Solar. Um, in Alberta. Those are fairly close to Brooks, Alberta, kind of on your way towards Medicine Hat. Each one of those is 32 megawatts. Uh, we are just finishing the Suffield Solar Project and actually achieved substantial completion last week on that. And that was 32 megawatts. And now we're just starting the Strathmore Solar Project, which is very close to Calgary, about uh, 45 minutes from the Calgary airport. And it is 50 megawatts. So the solar projects are starting to get bigger. And uh, we recently completed Lassiclair direct projects for Hydro, which was their first foray into solar. So that's approximately 12 megawatts. And then on the wind side, um, we are building out one of the last uh, projects from the LRP, the large renewable procurement in Ontario. So that's called Nation Rise. Uh, it's 100 megawatts and it, it will be complete in the next couple of months. We're building a project called Golden South, which is in southern Saskatchewan, uh, near a town of Assiniboia. So it's south of Moose Jaw. And that one is 200 megawatts. And uh, the turbines will arrive next year. But we have, uh, well, the rest of the turbines will arrive next year. We've already put many of them up. And then there's the Blue Hill project, which is also in Saskatchewan, which is 177 megawatts. Uh, you can see a picture there of it. Thank you for pulling that up. Uh, we don't have any turbines on this site yet, but uh, this was one of the unique facets of the project. Uh, first time for me being involved in a project where we had to put up the Met Tower with the helicopter, which is not an easy task to do, but it was a, a very high Met Tower. So unable to access that one with cranes. Um, I'll tell you a little bit about the Blue Hill project. It's 35 wind turbines and it is Siemens Gamesa, five megawatt units that we're putting up there. Um, and uh, this year we built the roads and the foundations. And then next year we will have the remainder of the project arrive. So we will install the collection system and we will also put up the wind turbines themselves and complete that project next year. Uh, currently, we're also constructing the Déculture project in Quebec for Kruger. Uh, it's a small project, 25 megawatts. Uh, we're also starting the Whitlaw wind project that is in 
Alberta again, and then that one's 150 megawatts. So this is phase two and phase three of that project. And so we've built the roads and the foundations already, and the wind turbines will arrive this year and we will put those up. And then we have also started the 200 megawatt, uh, 40 mile wind project, which is also in Southern Alberta. And that one is for Suncor, and uh, we will start that project in April. I'd like to just give a few quick highlights on the Suffield solar project that we just completed so that you can get a bit of a visual of the project. So uh, myself and our team spent a great deal of time on this project. It's 32 megawatts AC, um, or sorry, DC, and it's 25 megawatts AC. On the interconnect point, it's interconnecting like many solar projects into the Fortis Alberta line in Alberta. And what's unique about this project is that it has bifacial uh, modules, which is now becoming quickly an industry standard. Uh, so that has certainly improved the efficiency of this project. Uh, it also has tracker systems, which are following the sun's irradiance to maximize the amount of energy that we can output. Um, it has 9,000 piles on this site, so a lot of foundation work that we had to do. It has 1,200 tables of racking. And then, of course, we had an underground uh, collection system, as well as part of it was above ground, a unique type of system that has been recently designed where you can keep the DC cables above ground uh, to save some costs for the clientele on that. So this project is very similar to how our other projects are, are looking in Alberta as well, the other ones that we're building. So this is kind of a, a prime example. And as I mentioned, this one is producing energy and is substantially complete and soon there will be many others like it. So that's, uh, that's it for the breakdown on what Berea has been up to. Thanks, Murray. That's, uh, that's very good. I've just jotted down a few questions I'll uh, throw at you um, as when we get into the Q&A. But uh, I'll let uh, Julia go next and introduce herself and, and her, her role and also um, some background on, on energy solutions from InWave. Excellent. Thank you so much um, to Todd and team for having me here and inviting InWave to participate. Um, I don't have as impressive uh, numbers as Murray that is, uh, you know, very impressive the size and scale of the projects that your company's working on. Um, at N-Wave, we do consider ourselves small but mighty. And so uh, I hope I hope I'll be able to share some of those uh, small but mighty projects with you today. N-Wave Energy Corporation is based in Toronto, um, but we are across North America, and we are the largest core competency district energy company. Um, we basically provide heating and cooling for buildings, but uh, you know we're leading the way to bring district energy into the renewable um, sphere, uh, providing renewable thermal energy to buildings and communities in all of our regions and districts. Um, we are fully owned by Brookfield Infrastructure Partners, um, and we have systems in 12 regions in the U.S. and Canada. And as I mentioned, you know, moving into the future of lower carbon thermal energy and, and renewable energy, um, we are you know, looking at many different solutions that are not the tech, um, traditional boilers and chillers. We are looking at things like uh, biomass. We have a biomass facility in Seattle. Uh, we have ice storage in multiple facilities. One of the largest ones is in downtown Chicago, where we generate ice at night and melt it during the day to, pro to provide cooling for our downtown core. We are working on a project in Denver that uses waste heat from the sewer system. We are uh, working on other projects that use geothermal, and I can touch on those in a moment. Uh, we're very well known for deep lake water cooling here in Toronto, where we're using the cold water of the lake to cool Toronto's downtown core. And we even have a waste to energy facility that we're modernizing and upgrading in PEI. So just to give you a, a little bit of an example of where we're headed um, into the future 
we're agnostic to technologies and we will add um, nodes and we will add uh, distributed energy resources in all of our systems if those take us towards lower carbon and renewable solutions. So some of the projects that are, are we're really excited about and that use almost entirely renewables or low carbon sources, um, one I mentioned is in Denver. We are partnering with the city of Denver and Colorado State University, as well as a few other partners to bring uh, heating and cooling systems to about a 90 acre campus. And we're going to be using the heat um, from the sewer system to do that. So a really large project um, with you know, community engagement, with the city's support, and with the university buildings going to be connected, and we're really excited to get that project up off the ground. The entire project itself is committed to 100% renewable electricity, and so then we will be the provider of that renewable heating and cooling for the entire campus. Another project that's quite different from some of the projects um, you might think of downtown cores, large buildings, large office buildings, um, hospitals that we normally do. Um, one of the projects we're working on here in Ontario is uh, we are building a geothermal bore field underneath 300 plus single family homes and townhomes. Um, this is outside of the downtown core, of course, but we're we're venturing into um, an area where the buildings, of course, are smaller, um, and we're we're venturing into residential renewable development. So this project is in Markham, and we're working with an amazing developer as a partner. That's Madame. And we're using 300 homes. It's not quite a pilot. Uh, that's a little bit bigger than a pilot project. Um, but we're using the 300 homes subdivision development as our first um, go round to develop the, you know, the financial models, the business models and the technical models to make this type of development work. We see this as a very scalable solution um, for development of residential property. So a large geothermal bore field under all of the homes connecting every home to our network and it's a you know a business model where we will own and operate the system moving forward um, it therefore ensuring efficiency cost efficiencies and uh, the proper maintenance and operation of the geothermal bore field so happy to talk about some of these projects as we uh, get in and dive into our conversation today and again thank you for having me Thank you, Julia. That was interesting. I didn't know that you were doing the geothermal. Um, that's that's an interesting um, extension of what you already do. And I know Brookfield Infrastructure Partners does a lot of wind and solar, so might be opportunity for Borea to work with you on uh, some of those projects going down the road. Um, over to you, Jean-Francois, um, to, to give an introduction, and, and then we'll get started with Q&A. Great. Uh, thank you very much, Todd and the team, and uh, Julia and Murray. Happy to be on this panel with you. Uh, good morning, everyone. Um, so I'm with the Canadian Renewable Energy Association, uh, which is a fairly new uh, organization. In fact, we, uh, it was just created last July, in July 2020, in the middle of a global pandemic. So that was quite interesting. So Canria uh, is the product of the amalgamation of the Canadian Wind Energy Association and the Canadian, uh, Canadian Solar Industries uh, Association. So can we and Kensia uh, got together, it was long discussions, but I think very timely to create this uh, new uh, trade association with uh, an expanded, uh, an expanded mandate, uh, wind, solar, and storage, uh, both BTM and FTM. So now we cover the entire spectrum uh, of that, uh, of those three technology, uh, which is quite exciting, in fact. Um, and uh you know we currently represent uh, over 250 members you know large and small uh with that uh with that new focus uh um storage right that was not uh included in the uh in the two previous organizations which is quite interesting um so i'm leading a team uh that is spread across the country because we're a typical trade association but you know we're uh, quite different uh, because we are decentralized so we have uh staff located in in our what we call our core markets so we have um people in my team in calgary in in toronto in windsor ontario ottawa montreal 
so that we can really much uh, you know be involved at that level, engaging on behalf of our members with provincial uh, uh, utilities, uh, government officials, system operators, and other partners. And uh, we're a typical trade association, like I said, uh, with this uh, you know unique mess that we're decentralized. Uh, but we're also involved, uh, I've mentioned energy storage, but we also have uh, someone looking at uh, ER projects, so distributed energy resources projects. I'll also have someone in my team uh, looking at operations, which is a, a growing segment of our business now with uh, close to 13.5 uh, gigawatt of wind uh, installed, uh, you know, over 3,000 megawatt of solar. This um, this segment, in fact, of our industry, uh, ensuring that we have uh, you know smooth and efficient uh, operation uh, is is getting critical. We had a very good event yesterday uh, over the last two days, gathering uh, people uh, on on operation side that was quite successful as well. So I think that today's topic is quite timely. Uh, you know, uh, we're um, you know uh, talking a lot, and we'll be discussing today in terms of you know how to accelerate this energy transition, right? How to do it in a in a way that uh, uh, it's cost effective, uh, it's efficient, it's reliable, uh, and we're we're doing it at this point where uh, renewables are getting uh, very uh, low cost, right? You have wind and solar that uh, you know costs have declined quite dramatically over the last uh, last few years, with energy storage uh, emerging quite strongly, and we are at this tipping point where we have all of the ingredients, in fact, you know, to accelerate that transition, electrification of the economy. We have all of the ingredients, but now we have to make sure that we uh, that we're putting them together so it makes sense, right? And that we have a good dish ultimately at the end, and that we're able to ultimately reduce emissions, knowing that we have clear commitments from governments about carbon neutrality and near zero emitting grid by 2050. So that's the vision that we are hooking ourselves, right, and, and keeping uh, our eyes on, and that's what we're you know how we're uh, working with our members and, and other partners in order to uh, ultimately make it happen. So happy to be part of the discussion here today and looking forward for our discussion. Great, thanks. And I think that's a great point for us to jump into the actual costs of energy. Um, as, as you all have mentioned, you know, the cost of renewables was quite high, say 10 years ago. Um, I think during the FIT program under the, the Green Energy Plan in Ontario, uh, we were looking at, uh, you know, wind and solar, certainly on the wind side was upwards of 80 cents a kilowatt hour um, for some of the developers. And that didn't really jive with the rates that people were paying on their hydro bills. So, Murray, over to you. Uh, what's 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 driving these costs down? Obviously, it's not 80 cents a kilowatt hour anymore. Um, where where do you see the costs from where we were, say, 10 years ago to where they are now? Yeah, they've come down dramatically. If you just look at the latest procurements that have been made, I, I can reference the LRP in Ontario. They were paying $85 a megawatt hour for wind in that procurement. And then conversely, you compare that to what has occurred in the recent RFPs in Alberta and Saskatchewan. You go from 85 in Ontario versus 37 uh, in Alberta, so $37 a megawatt hour. And then Saskatchewan is around $42 a megawatt hour. So it, it's less than half over uh, a, a relatively short duration. And um, I can say that what is driving it is primarily, first and foremost, the technology. So I'll, I'll try to segregate the wind and the solar conversation. So on the wind side, when I started, uh, every project was a one and a half megawatt GE turbine is what it seemed like in those days, uh, 2008 to 2012, it just seemed like everything was one and a half megawatts and uh, and you put it together like Lego and, and now it's uh, four and a half to, to five megawatts per generator. So if you can picture a wind farm, you still need a road you to get to that turbine you still need a foundation under that turbine you still need uh, to plow in a collection system so at some extent mobilizing those resources to build those things has to be done either way but now that the turbine is higher the road is very similar to what it always was it's maybe just a wee bit thicker for heavier loads 
the foundation is a little bit larger, uh, but certainly not exponentially larger. So if you went from a one and a half megawatt uh, turbine to a five megawatt turbine, um, you've increased your capacity by three times, but maybe the foundation is less than twice as large as it was. Mm -hmm. so you can see that there's absolutely a net benefit. Um, the cabling used to be smaller, but the cost of installing it is really no different if you go with um, a 1250 MCM cable versus a 500 MCM cable, you still have to bury it. You still need the equipment to bury it. So everything's a little bit larger. And because of that, it's driving the cost down dramatically. So on the wind side, it's really because we have bigger generators. Yes, the hub heights are a little bit higher, uh, particularly in Ontario, as we run out of, you know, the very best sites with the very highest wind. Uh, we end up sometimes at 120 meter hub heights, which is a very large crane and expensive. But on the prairies, uh, the wind resource is still so high on these sites that we're building that we're, we're back down around 90 meters like we used to be in, say, 2012. It hasn't changed a lot. So the crane size has not changed dramatically. It's a little bit larger. So that's what's driving it down uh, in my world on, on the wind side. And then on the solar side, I can say that first and foremost, what drives it down is the module itself. So the modules, you know, even a few years ago were 300 watt monofacial <laughs> modules. And now uh, this year we're doing 400 watt bifacials. Next year it'll be 500 watt bifacials. <laughs> Um, so you still have to put in that module onto a table, but it's generating more energy. Um, it still requires cable, but it's generating more energy. Um, there's a lot more activity driving down solar, I would say, and, and its potential to continue to decrease is probably higher than wind, in, in my view. Um, the inverter stations are getting larger and larger, so we can have less inverter stations to capture more energy. So instead of being in the two megawatt range, now they're getting up around the four megawatt range. Um, the tracking systems have really come down in cost. It used to be prohibitive to build a tracking system because it was expensive. You knew that you wanted to track the sun, but it was very expensive. Extensive buildouts that have happened uh, in China and in the United States have allowed us to buy these products very, very cheaply, uh, almost on par with the fixed racking system. So the tracker supply increases the energy production, and we're really not paying much of a premium for it anymore like we used to. Um, what made a dramatic change in solar, if you look back to the feed in tariff. Uh, projects. I mean, there were some unbelievably high rates that they were paying for solar in those days. And right now, solar in Alberta is being sold at $48 a megawatt hour. So it's a very small premium to wind. Wind is 37 a megawatt hour, whereas solar is 48 a megawatt hour. And I think what has first and foremost change that is the cost of the modules. Uh, the polysilicon market dropped immensely over the last decade and consequently we can buy modules much cheaper and this is primarily due to you know the mining of, of silica in China and then bringing it over. And so I see solar diving a lot further in the next 10 years. I think it can go down another 15-25%, uh, which would bring it right on par with where wind is right now. And of course, the benefit with solar being that you're getting that energy in the daytime while the grid is wanting to use it. Whereas with wind, um, a lot of that energy production may be in the nighttime and the utilization from the grid, the demand might not be there. Um, so. I'm seeing a lot of activity in the solar sector. In 2016, we were doing zero solar projects, and now it is about a third of our business, and that just keeps growing and growing. 
Great. Julia uh, or Jean-Francois, do you want to dive in on, on how cost is driving some of these energy solutions? I know, Julia, obviously you don't go by kilowatt uh, hour uh, rates, but uh, um, I know one of the questions I, I think you can answer best on the cost side of things is, is the sustainability quotient uh, a, a, a reason why costs are going down? I think that is um, part of the reason there's so many drivers that are in play right now. So many things that are happening, as you mentioned in your introduction, um, with government and um, government um, setting targets and mandates and even um, building funding programs for more renewable solutions to come to the forefront. Uh, we have the carbon tax that they have now you know, proposed that it go up quite drastically. Um, in in the next number of years. Um, so we have that as a driver of um, hopefully a, a disincentive to continue to do what we're doing um, and an incentive to reduce costs um, and go to the low carbon solution. So I think there's so many things happening. Our customers, you know, we, we deal directly with the landlord, the building owner, the homeowner, the condo corporation itself, whomever is actually building the buildings. And in Canada, that conversation has changed so much in the past 10 years. Um, they're asking us for solutions now. People are, are becoming more and more aware of what we need to do um, as a society and what we need to do in our communities. And there are leaders out there that are willing to partner with us and come up with solutions that are you know, cost effective and give us all of the extra benefits of sustainability. So I think that being aware and and having all the multiple drivers of sustainability, um, the drivers of low carbon are really going to push us in that direction. And I would say it's it's you know somewhat on a higher level, pushing us to find the solutions, pushing us to work with our with our customers and our partners to actually not just stop at the first feasibility study, but to really dig deep into those cost estimates, the assumptions, get really detailed to find that solution. That's where we're finding our sweet spot, uh, willing to go the extra step, the extra mile, um, and do things that are different, do things, um, investigate solutions that have never been done before. Um, and other people may say that's, that's not financially feasible. They may sort of brush it to the side, um, but we have partners that want to do sustainable projects. And so we're getting at sort of these gold nuggets of, of the solution that keep us commercially cost competitive. Um, so I think that the, the idea that we're working together and that sustainability is, I, I would say the environmentalist in me would say, um, you know, said that's that we'll reframe the question and say what, what, you know, what is the cost of not? being sustainable. Um, but when we talk to our customers, we do need to talk about, you know, these, these types of things. And what we are saying is let's work together because uncovering more value is the type of conversation that we want to have. Uncovering more value with these sustainable um, assets and our sustainable developments are really where we're headed in the conversation. And leaving that, oh, it, it costs a little bit more and focusing just on price is, you know, we're, we're, leaving that in the past and we're moving towards value creation. Um, so that's, that's the triple bottom line. It's not just necessarily that uh, it's, it's more profitable to go with renewables, but there's also the other social and, and uh, environmental impacts too. So Jean-Francois, mm -hmm. on, on your side on the cost, what, what are you seeing from the industry um, around the solutions and the, the cost of those solutions for utilities? Great. Um, so just building on what Murray and, and Julia said, yeah, I agree with that. Um, you know, a lot of uh, improvements were made on, on the technology side of things, which helped very much in driving the cost down. However, you know, Julia mentioned it. Uh, there are other drivers, right? Uh, government policies. Uh, you know, we have uh, clear um, uh, climate policies in place in different parts of the country and different provinces. The federal government is, is starting sending uh, you know, quite uh, significant signals um, 
to uh, to that effect when the coal phase out uh, and now with carbon pricing and, and other few measures. But I think we have also to mention the role of in, uh, investors, right? Uh, I've been in this industry for a very long period of time. Uh, you know, 10, 12 years ago, uh, wind and solar, solar in particular, but also wind, you know, they were both quite marginal, right? Uh, now, uh, those two uh, form of electricity generations are uh, mainstream. Right, uh, there are the form of electricity generation that are the most built in Canada and elsewhere. So it's part of a global trend ultimately. And you have investors uh, like pension funds, for example, and other institutional investors that are ready to participate to invest. Uh, they would accept uh, lower return, and all of that ultimately have uh, a huge impact on, on on driving the cost down ultimately. And the reason why those those investors are there is because uh, renewables uh, kept uh, its promise, right? It was supposed, and we were saying 10, 12 years ago that it was effective, that mm -hmm. we were reliable, delivering, uh, uh, you know, a low cost and non-emitting electricity and clean electricity. This is what the sector did ultimately. And that's why, because uh, it's uh, it's profitable ultimately to invest in those technologies and people are, are asking for it, individual communities, but also um, uh, governments around the globe and here in Canada too. So I think those are you know few factors ultimately that you, that have together huge impact on on driving the cost down. Mm -hmm. uh, but there are also other other reasons for that. Yeah, yeah and then uh, obviously that's a great segue into uh, one of our questions. I, but I just wanted to emphasize the point of, of government. Um, um, driving this and also investors driving the cost down. Uh, obviously, recent announcement in December from the federal government, $964 million is going to be devoted to renewable energy um, uh, and grid modernization. Uh, I mentioned earlier about Biden and Davos, but you're also seeing uh, big financial players like BlackRock saying that they are going to look at um, uh, an environmental lens and SDG, in SDG and um, uh, ESG lens on any of the investments they make. So uh, companies, uh, provinces, municipalities, uh, organizations that go into renewables are going to benefit um, from those future investments. So that's actually a good lead into our question, which is, how do you bring renewables closer to where they're being used and how does that affect costs? So I think what we're talking about here, instead of um, having, you know, the distributed energy uh, options. So um, uh, yesterday I was in a, a webinar and OPG was talking about small modular reactors. Uh, obviously we have solar and wind a bit capability at the homeowner level. You could put panels on your roof. Uh, so Murray, over to you, how do municipalities make decisions um, about their energy use and, and renewable uh, development? I don't think the municipalities are very involved uh, in that selection. Perhaps you're alluding to remote communities of which I don't have experience. We have not built projects in remote communities, probably because we, we build more large scale. So as far as having the energy close to where it's needed, uh, I view that that is happening. We're usually right next to an point of interconnect. It's very rare that we have to build any significant uh, transmission tie line. Um, in some older days, we had to build maybe a 30 kilometer T line, but right now with these solar projects, they are being sited all along the Fortis Alberta line. Uh, if you look at all the projects that are being proposed in Alberta, and it's to eliminate having to build a massive substation so you can just do a tap and switch directly into their tie line and your plug and play into the grid. And you can make a small investment, 25 megawatts uh, at the cost of solar. It's not an enormous investment anymore and you don't have to spend $10 million on a substation. Um, so I feel that they are already doing that. And that's that's my experience. I'm not a developer. I, I put them where they want me to put them. Uh, more of a construction guy. Yeah, the, the construction is an important part, but I'm also thinking about the permitting, and, and that's where the municipality uh, gets involved. And, and obviously, as a utility, sometimes municipalities are the utilities and vice versa. So I'm thinking, you know, what the, the driver from a, a political point of view with not only the, the permitting of the energy project, but uh, making sure that it, it fits the community that they're they're serving. Mm -hmm. So, 
Um, maybe Julia and, and Jean-Francois, you can mention about you know the locality of energy. I, I can jump in and say, you know, for our business, the location is 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 absolutely key. Um, our municipalities that we work in are massive uh, supporters and often can be partners in maybe financially, maybe not financially, um, but they're partners either way. Uh, we do rely on them for permitting and to, you know, we have to dig up the street sometimes and put it back together. And we have to deal with our municipalities and, and all of our partners in each location. I would also say the nature of district energy is that that we're not extended as far as uh, Fortis BC might be extended. You know, we're not generating electricity. We're not distributing natural gas. Um, our networks are much smaller. So inherently, they are more local. Um, and I think that where we're headed with our business and sort of the types of energy sources that we're looking at, we're looking at not generation first, we're looking at things like the Denver project, where we can use existing wasted energy or waste heat um, and use that specific to the location um, to heat and cool the buildings in that location. So we're looking at smaller communities and networks that recycle and upcycle and share and distribute energy where it's needed and, and take it from where it's not needed in that local, very hyper-local perhaps community there. And in that way, we're being much more efficient with the energy in the whole area and the whole region. And then we have to actually generate less. So our the nature of our business, I think, is much more local. Therefore, we do have to work with our municipalities. Um, and, and there's some surprising um, success stories with doing that. Um, it's not just please give us a permit. It's, you know, how do we contribute to your climate targets? How can we be a partner to gain access to parks? And so could we could we build borehole fields under your parks, under your public spaces so that the neighboring communities can benefit? So lots yeah. of things that we're doing at the local level. Thank you. And Jean-Francois? Sure. Uh, I mean, uh, I do think that municipalities and in, 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 in cities are, 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 are playing and will play a huge role going forward. I think there are two distinctions here. I think the rural communities, uh, you know, the ones where uh, Murray is, is building those projects, you know, they will be looking to uh, to to get some revenues from those uh, utility scale projects, either to partner or to get some some kind of uh, contributions uh, because they're located on their on their territory and you know in terms of job investment and local investment. So that's one, and it's maybe that the more traditional uh, way that we've seen in Canada, but it's critical. And same with First Nations, right? How can we how can we make sure to involve those communities, you know, very early on in the, in in, uh, in those projects. Now, the other side of things are, you know, urban centers. You know, how are they gonna, you know, uh, play into that into that uh, into that economy and that sector at one point? And this is when you know comes like uh, solar PV, like rooftop uh, solar uh, for residential, but also commercial and industrial, coupled with with storage, with district energy, for example. And then, and then with with the the newest technologies like EVs, uh, smart grid, uh, artificial intelligence. You put all of this together ultimately, and I, you know, I, I say all the time that the electricity sector in Canada, but also you know globally, but also in Canada, will change more in the next five to ten years that it has changed in the last hundred years. And this that's the level of of disruption that is currently happening in the system. It's even, you know, it's at the scale of the telecom uh, in the 90s, right, in 2000 at one point. And look, you know, if we are to meet our climate targets, if we are to be a carbon neutral country and have a carbon neutral economy by 2050, we need to double, if not triple, electricity generation in this country. How you do it, right, and how you do it in a cost-effective way, you need to find, identify, you know, non-wire solutions ultimately, you know that you'll be able to provide electricity, clean electricity, uh, uh, and renewable uh, energy uh, to the core, right? Where where the the electricity and the energy is consumed. So I think you know there'll be a, a mix uh, there, uh, and I think it's on us like, to be sophisticated enough and to offer turnkey solutions to you know all those level of of, uh, of government, like municipal level, uh, and also urban centers, and make sure that we're uh, participating in all those discussions. 
Good, good, good. And keeping on this theme of uh, innovative projects and, and where they're located, um, Murray, what, just tell us maybe a little bit about one of your innovative projects uh, in terms of the technology, the scale, and the geography. So keeping to, you know, where renewables makes most sense to be constructed. What provinces do you see? What local co communities do you see? And, and give us an example of a project that's fit for that province or, or municipality area. Well, right now it's pointing at Alberta for the reason that um, they put a moratorium on their coal-fired generation, right? So, I mean, that's the reason I'm busy today. That's the, the truth of the matter is that um, there's not a lot of increase in demand to justify, you know, building a gigawatt a year like, like Berea is right now. But when you remove a bunch of generation off of the grid, uh, like they are in Alberta over the coming years, that is what is currently driving the demand there. Um, from a geographic standpoint, I already talked about the costs of wind and solar, and there's no doubt from just looking at the facts that the cheapest place to construct in Canada is Alberta and Saskatchewan. Uh, there's a few reasons for that. I would say uh, one is the resource. So you have a very high irradiance resource in Alberta, particularly Southern Alberta, uh, and even on into Saskatchewan. So that's on the solar side. And then on the wind side, they have some of the very best sites. I mean, there's great sites all across Canada as well. I mean, I've done projects in BC, Quebec, Ontario also, where they had excellent resources. But just the fact that we're able to put the turbines at such low hub height in Alberta uh, tells me that the resource is excellent there. So that's one reason why they can offer it cheaper. On my side, the reason that it's cheaper in that locale is primarily due to topography and the makeup of the soils. So in Alberta and Saskatchewan, it's primarily clay and sandy till, whereas projects that I've done in BC, uh, I did a project called Meekle in 2016 where our crews were moving and blasting 300,000 cubic meter of rock. Uh, that's going to immensely harm your project economics. Um, also, we did the Cape Scott uh, wind farm on the northern tip of Vancouver Island where there was incredible environmental challenges to overcome. BC is filled with forests and this was a rainforest. And so you had fisheries involved and there was acid rock that had occurred. And it, it can be, depending on the location in, in places like BC, quite cost prohibitive. Whereas you go to Alberta, it's flat, it's clay, there's a bit of sand, and this translates to very low costs for us. Um, and then when you go further to Quebec, I mean, it's a very good place to construct, but you will deal with rock. And so it is a bit more expensive there. Uh, I'd also like to mention that my experience is that the labor is, is remarkably cheaper in Alberta. And maybe that wouldn't have been the case five years ago. But when you compare the unionized environment of constructing in Quebec and what you pay for the labor there to the, the labor that's coming out of the local technical schools in southern Alberta and northern Alberta, People are, their expectations are far lower and their qualifications are on par. And so this is a big input to our overall balance of plant costs. So I would say there's two pieces. There's the resource side that makes it cheaper on the prairies. And then there's the labor side and the topography and the makeup of the soils that makes the prairies just a very inexpensive place to build right now. And, and Jean-François, are you seeing some of the same things uh, uh, in, in the wind and solar and, and storage areas uh, with the location, but also the labor? Yeah, of course. I think, you know, if we step back, you know, we have to look, you know, Canada from an electricity point of view, you know, 10 provinces, 10 different countries, right? So all different conditions that we're involving that we're building those projects. And we ha you have to keep in mind the drivers to build you know, wind in particular, but, you know, even potentially solar in Quebec is quite different than the drivers to build uh, the same 
projects in Alberta, right? You're not building here to reduce uh, uh, emission, uh, you know, uh, GG emissions, right? You're doing it because it's a it's a great uh, um, has great uh, potential uh, for local economic development, but also now it's the lowest cost of electricity generation, right? So I, I keep saying renewables are cheap, right? You look at global trend, the trend is is go, is going down. The conditions that you add on top of those projects are making, you know, could make those projects a bit more expensive. So in Quebec, in, in parts of, you know, back in the days in Ontario, we had local content requirement. In Quebec, we, we even have a layer, another layer, which is original content requirements. So we'll see what happens in the future. But all of those conditions are also, you know, having an impact ultimately on the overall cost of those projects. It is, however, the prerogative of those governments, if they want to go and use those projects to ultimately, you know, have some spin-up effects in terms of uh, economic development and 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 job creation, that's good, right? We just have to make sure that you know we're uh, you know out there, clear, transparent about what are the drivers for those investments, and then the temptation to compare, you know, the price of you know the 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 uh, the rep projects in Alberta and the uh, uh, renewable, uh, the REP, uh, the LRP projects in Ontario and in other regions, you know, that temptation is, is very high, obviously, you know, that's what we want to do. Uh, but because of those, uh, different conditions, uh, it's, it's, it's a bit difficult to do, right? For the resource, but also all of the, you know, the, the other conditions that are attached to that system. So, um, there are some real conditions, right, that ultimately have an impact. But uh, but I think we have to take it and look look and compare and put in perspectives those investments that we're making in a specific province uh, against uh, other similar investments that we'll make in that province as well, right? You know, if we're not building wind uh, in Alberta, what else, right? And what would be the cost uh, for that uh, electricity generation? I think that's maybe the best way to do uh, to look at it. Yeah, it's it's all about the mix, right? I think. Um... Right. People are looking, each province is looking at what their base load is and where they can uh, rely on renewables for some of that extra uh, energy for their for the grid, whether it's either local or, or distributed. Um, so that, that leads into or maybe our final question. We'll, we'll see and we'll have time for each one of you to have some closing remarks. But uh, we, there's lots of money coming on the market. Uh, we talked about that earlier from government uh, investors. Uh, everybody's pouring money into renewables. Um, so why are we not seeing um, massive generation, I think, uh, or, or construction, uh, Murray? Um, I think Ontario is what, 11% renewable is part of, is, is in their grid. Uh, 58 of that is, is uh, nuclear. I think each province has a different mix, but renewable is still a small sliver when you look at the global energy uh, use. It's still a small sliver. What do we need to do? The money's there, the will is there. What do we need to do to make uh, more renewable energy projects? Let's start with you, Murray. It's lack of procurement from the province's standpoint. So uh, in Alberta, they have to do it because they're stripping off this energy uh, from the coal-fired generation. So they need it. And so that's why they had a program. Um, Ontario has not provided any direction as to where they're going that I'm aware of as far as another procurement. Uh, Quebec Hydro, I'm not aware of another significant procurement that they have out to tender at the current time. Um, one that's very near and dear to my heart is uh, British Columbia did the Site C thing without uh, a real RFP to back up that they had chosen the technology that was going to uh, be of the greatest value to its constituents, of which I won. And I would love to see the provinces uh, forecasting their energy demand and coming up with RFPs. And I'm perfectly comfortable and think it would be prudent of them to their constituents to make them technology agnostic and let renewables compete on its own bearing and compare um, apples to apples as best as you can, megawatts to megawatts of real capacity that is available and see what makes sense. But at this point in time, you can't create demand from nowhere. So it's not that Canada is growing exponentially each year. Um, as electrification takes effect and people start buying more electric vehicles and the demand grows and grows, I do hope 
and I'm optimistic that there will be programs coming out in the coming years where they will forecast that demand and see that, in fact, they do need more energy. But at this point in time, the fact that people are investing in energy stocks is great, but you can't build it unless there is someone from these utilities purchasing the power. You know, I could echo a few of those thoughts as well. Um, you know, my first thought, like Murray, is our customers are slightly different. We actually have to go to each individual building or individual developer and actually connect them. Um, I wish we could just sell to the province and have one one big customer or or larger larger customer groups. Um, so it does take quite a long time for us. Um, we're not a regulated utility and there is no mandate for buildings to connect to district energy. Um, there are mandates in other countries um, but that has its pros and cons as well, depending on um, the country and the culture. So we have to really go out and, and find our customers and create that demand as well. And that takes quite a long time. I would say for all of the infrastructure, you know, we're looking at what what do we build for 80 years from now? From now, how do we build for 100 years from now? And we're working at building things that are flexible and nimble and modular and and that type of thing so that when the demand comes and our customers realize the benefits, we can switch them and we can we can decarbonize and over time in phases our entire system. Good, which good. benefits everybody that's connected. And so we're really excited about the programs that are coming out. Um, we'd love to probably get our hands on money faster than, than normal. Uh, you know, it's there and it's coming, but these processes do take quite a bit of time. And then we have to be in lockstep, not just with our customer demand, but with the investment as it comes. Uh, we can't, you know, construct without somebody taking energy from us. And uh, we need the money to, to follow along our process. So, so procurement, I think, you know, Murray nailed it. Um, we need more procurement from, from provinces, people driving that. So Jean-Francois, do you want to? Sure. I mean, we are at this tipping point, right? It's the artistic curve and we're just at the bottom of it. Uh, our sector, we don't need subsidies, right? We need market access. I think Murray yeah. mentioned it. However, policies matter, right? And uh, the greatest example is a coal phase out. So what we need at this point in this country is ultimately we need we know that we know where we need to go right the carbon neutrality non-emitting grid by 2050. So how do you get there? You need the federal government to work with provinces to help them to electrify their economy, right? And, and you need to address uh, you know those issues. Ultimately, it means that you need to create uh, right uh, electricity demand doesn't doesn't fall from the sky as as Murray said, but you can create electricity demand because you need to electrify the economy and you want to electrify the economy for all the reasons that we know. So ultimately, you need to address the elephant in the room. We dealt with coal, with uh, coal-fired generation. It's done, right? We're going to have the coal phase out. So now, if we if we want a near zero emitting grid by 2050, what do you do with gas? That's the next big question in Canada, right? And it's a hot topic. It is difficult, right, to address it, but we need to address it. You have existing technologies wind solar storage like cost competitive you know they, you know can be easily deployed in a very fast way now we need the investment you need a political uh will to do it as well uh and and you can get there right so this is how you create the market the other big elephant in the room is the us right now with the new administration we will see a lot of interest uh going towards uh towards uh renewables right we will see uh you know uh an increased interest uh and there was a lot of interest already right and from a from a canadian perspective the us from a renewable point of view is a huge magnet for investment right so if we're not making bold moves here if we're not sending clear signal here investment will go elsewhere murray will send his you know his people south of the border this is where they're going to be busy and will be lagging behind, right? So I think now's the time. Uh, I think we have all, I've mentioned that, we have all of the, the ingredients. So how do we put them together so that we have the dish that we want ultimately? Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a great point to, to, to close out here. Uh, we're up on our hour. Um, I think uh, there's a lot that, that we're gonna cover in the, the follow-up articles and, and content that we're gonna be putting on Renew Canada. Uh, Connie Vitello will probably be reaching out to each one of you to, to, to build on some of the things that we've talked about today, uh, driving the cost down through uh, more procurement, 
uh, dealing with the gas situation, dealing with some of the other, uh, you know, decarbonization of our energy, I think will help uh, with that. And, and Murray, you're very uh, astute in pointing out that as we develop more renewable projects, the cost of those renewable projects go down. So that makes it even more attractive to include in our grid. So I want, want to thank you all for attending and, and being part of this conversation. I wish we could go another hour. I've got like seven different questions and things I wanted to pose to you. But, uh, um, you know, this is a hot topic. And I think uh, uh, Renew Canada and Infraintelligence will probably be back to uh, the renewable energy infrastructure conversation. Thank you, Murray and Borea, for, for your uh, involvement and, and sponsorship. Thank you, Julia, for attending and, and, and giving the N-Wave perspective, and Jean-Francois, um, obviously, the multi-sectoral um, perspective. So um, we have uh, a lot to cover. Uh, I want to thank everybody again, and uh, we'll see you next time. Infraintelligence podcasts are adapted from an ongoing webinar series hosted by Renew Canada magazine. You can find out more by following Renew Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn or by visiting renewcanada.net.